Hello and welcome. This is Frank coming at you with episode one of Game of Thrones, my recap. I'm going to do it solo this week, but I'm looking forward to having some really interesting guests this season. I have some ideas, but if you'd like to get in touch with me and want to be on the show, you can do that at frankmalpod at gmail. That's frank, M-A-L-P-O-D, at gmail.com. So let's get started. Premiere of Season 7 Game of Thrones. I'm going to say the best premiere we've ever had, except maybe the pilot. Every time you have a premiere in Game of Thrones, I've talked about this before, that there is sort of a formula to every Game of Thrones season. And one of the strongest parts of that formula is the premiere episode, which is mostly about catching you up about where the characters are and what they've been doing. You know, most shows have a, you know, last week on Game of Thrones, but it seems like the first first episode of every season is the last season on Game of Thrones. And we find out what all the characters have been were doing last year, and they have a scene that talks about the challenges that they're going to face in the new season, but doesn't really advance the story. This was different. The cold open advanced the story. Let's get started with that. The cold open advanced the story by killing basically the entire remainder of House Frey. And Arya is now a serial-killing badass who seems unstoppable at this point, and I'm amazed at how quickly her transformation has been completed and how fast her skills advanced, but it seems like she doesn't really have much to worry about anymore in terms of the risks of her assassinations. Uh, She seems to be able to kill with impunity. And that sort of brings up some interesting uh, topics that I want to talk about in the show, because... At this point, I'm starting to really worry about a lot of the characters on the show because I think that there are way more deaths coming. I would be very surprised if half of the major characters on the show, except for my big three, which are Tyrion, Jon, and Daenerys, who I feel will survive the show. But other than that, there's a lot more deaths coming. And I think Arya is one of them. I think revenge is always a very dangerous mission in a story, especially in fantasy stories. There are so many examples in in, uh, the canon of fantasy about how revenge can consume you and overwhelm you, leading to tragic ends. You know, two examples that come to mind, obviously, Hamlet. Uh, Revenge doesn't really go very well there. And uh, Moby Dick, definitely uh, a good example of revenge and the desire to gain retribution over your enemy ends up leading you to destroy yourself as well. And I'm starting to be concerned about Arya because I definitely see Game of Thrones as part of the literary tradition and George R. R. Martin being a very well-read guy, not only in his own genre, but overall, you can definitely see the parallels. Um, This is obviously a story that's not really being told by George anymore, but it's kind of like the big themes of the story, those big, long arcs, uh, I think are very much still tied to George's original vision. 
so I think we need to be concerned about Arya and where her story is going to take her. Going to King's Landing will be dangerous, and I'm I'm not sure she will survive. I don't think, and uh, and if she does succeed, what does that mean? Like, what is her path forward now? Uh, it's hard to uh, come out of something when you've completed something that you've been dreaming about your whole life. What do you do next? Uh, that's something that. Uh, Inigo Montoya says at the end of Princess Bride, um, obviously he's sort of redeemed in a comic way by becoming the Dread Pirate Roberts, but uh, I think that Arya might have some trouble ahead. Uh, so, but, it, but clearly it was an amazing scene. Uh, personally, uh, I, I guess I wasn't really thinking. I had forgotten that she had uh, fed Walder Frey, his two oldest sons, and killed him. So I wasn't really expecting it. It was just kind of a, a great moment for my for me where I wasn't prepared, uh, where I should have known right away what was happening. Uh, but I was kind of watching the episode a little bit cold. I hadn't watched the previous season. Um, and uh, a great moment to start the show. Uh, and a great moment to end the show with um, an amazing quote that I think kind of really says, a lot about what this episode was. Uh, Daenerys, after that amazing scene where she comes home to Dragonstone, um, which is really, you know, despite uh, King's Landing and the Red Keep being sort of the uh, the, the home of the Targaryens for longer, uh, Dragonstone is is really the quintessential Targaryen place. It's the first stronghold that they had in Westeros that was built before they started their conquest. And I think that there is still a lot of Targaryen stuff there that she's going to find. And I think she, you know, without saying a word, uh, Amelia Clark and the rest of the cast really just with their body language and their faces and just the fact that uh, Tyrion and Missandei and Grey Worm kind of give her space as she's climbing the steps to uh, her, really what, where she's been trying to go her whole life. I mean, besides sitting on the Iron Throne, like this is kind of the first step to the end. And I think that really says a lot about what the premiere was, which is really, I mean, we've said this before, but this was the beginning of the end. I think that the show is going to proceed at a much quicker pace going forward. Every episode will be loud. There are going to be very few episodes where not a lot happens and we sort of move the storyline along, but there's a lot of questions remaining. I think it's going to be... There's going to, The episodes are going to be long. There's only going to be seven more, if you don't know, but a lot of them are going to be extra long, sometimes an hour and a half. And they're going to be loud. There's going to be a lot to happen going forward. And uh, Shall We Begin really encompasses that. And uh, yeah, we are really on the fast track to conclusion of Game of Thrones, despite how terrible a thought that is for me. So uh, let's keep going. Um, I want to talk about some of the major conflicts that started in this episode. You know, really, this was stuff, again, that was started in the previous episodes from the last season. But uh, there are two main conflicts now that I'm concerned about between two characters 
that uh, I wasn't didn't really think were going to be in conflict. Uh, one is John and Sansa, and the other is Cersei and Jaime. Uh, so let's start with John and Sansa. Uh, wow, I'm I, I'm not surprised because we saw this already that Sansa is having a lot of trouble being second fiddle, trusting John and supporting him the way I think all of us want her to. Um, it's, it's, it's not that I'm saying that Sansa shouldn't have a voice, even though I've said this many times that I don't like Sansa. I don't like the choices that she makes. And I feel like she hasn't really learned the right lessons about what caused the misery that was caused. Um, I, I think she's traumatized. I think that she now feels like she can't trust anyone other than herself because uh, obviously she says it in the episode and it's, it's pretty clear, you know, her father couldn't protect her. Uh, she doesn't think that anybody can protect her if Ned Stark couldn't protect her. And so she needs to protect herself. But I feel like this desire to feel safe for protection is now an end that trumps all other concerns. And I'm worried that she's going to make decisions that are not in the best interest of everyone, but serve herself and her own needs for just to feel safe. And again, at this point, I think we can all understand that because of what she's been through with Ramsey, et cetera. But uh, this is a danger. And I think John is not getting through to her that he that they're on the same side, that she can feel as secure as she ever could, that their enemies are far away, that they can work together, and that undermining John is actually not in her interest. I don't see at this point what that accomplishes for Sansa. Uh, I mean, yeah, she can believe that John's path is not the right one. Uh, she's not the first person to doubt the severity of the threat of the Night King. But to question him in public like this so early on, especially when John is facing some uh, issues of legitimacy, him him not being a trueborn Stark, and that's something obviously that uh, Littlefinger is going to be talking about quite a bit going forward. So, uh, John is the King of the North by acclaim, but uh, the, the crown and the prestige of the King of the North have always been with the Stark family, and anytime you're going against a precedent like this, one that's in this case is thousands of years old, uh, there's going to be some, what I'm saying is that John's power is not rock solid here. Uh, he could very easily lose the support of these lords, um, of the North. And that is basically the key to him having any chance to save the realm is by keeping this coalition together of the Knights of the Vale led by Littlefinger, obviously a challenge, the Lords of the North, and the Wildlings. He needs all three to really have 
any chance at all. And Sansa is now, I think, unnecessarily making his job a lot more difficult. Uh, and I, I just think that I, I wonder because I question her ability, his, her strategic abilities, uh, because I agree with John wholeheartedly that there is very little, if not zero chance that Cersei is going to lead an invasion of the North. Uh, I think possibly her sending assassins is possible, but I think unlikely uh, considering all the other challenges she has. If anything, Cersei is going to have to face the challenges of the Tyrells and Danny long before she has to worry about the North. And so what is the more pressing concern here, Sansa? <laughs> I think it's clearly not Cersei, but again, I'm concerned that since Sansa has been so traumatized that she is placing an inordinate amount of respect in Cersei's abilities, which I have always felt are very limited. You know, it's, it, it's, it's always easy in this world to defeat your opponents by doing something that they won't expect because it's just considered outside of the norms of behavior. And you see this over and over and over again with uh, the Red Wedding and with uh, Cersei uh, destroying the Sept of Baelor. I mean, you can definitely defeat your enemies and just by murdering them in ways that they don't expect. But at this point, I think we have to start to understand that doing that doesn't actually cause you to win because... Every time Cersei kills somebody, it seems like it just creates more problems. Yes, she's on the throne, but that's meaningless. Honestly, it means nothing that she is sitting on the Iron Throne right now, and that's what Jamie's been saying this whole time, which I will get to. But it doesn't make sense for me for Sansa to be following Cersei's example, which is an example that I don't feel has worked. Uh, so what does this mean? I have no idea what Sansa is now capable of. I think clearly she doesn't want to marry Littlefinger, but it doesn't seem like she's ruling it out as well, because why is Littlefinger still there? Uh, at this point, yes, the Knights of the Vale will be necessary, but I'm not sure that Littlefinger is actually a reliable ally. So when it comes to a life-or-death struggle against an incredibly powerful, magical, apocalyptic threat, is Littlefinger really going to be the kind of guy that stands firm and faces that threat come what may, even if it's a suicide mission? Do you ever... I couldn't imagine Littlefinger ever being part of a suicide mission. It's just not in his nature. He's always going to try to survive and try to find a way... To get the upper hand. And so if he needs to just take all of his guys and go home and think, well, I can maybe fight another day and let these northerners handle the White Walkers and that will probably end up killing them. And that's good for me in a short-sighted way. Uh, I think that's what he'll do. So what value does Littlefinger have now? Because 
the North is secure for the moment. I mean, there's no other enemies for the Vale uh, to help John fight. So why put yourself out there, Sansa, as that, that this marriage is still possible? Even if she's giving him the cold shoulder, she's not just saying, I will never marry you get the hell out of here, or, you know, just realize that this is never going to happen. She's just giving him the cold shoulder, and Littlefinger saying, oh, you want to play hard to get? What can I give you that will make you happy? Well, that seems like the sort of thing that a suitor would ask this sort of person. So, I don't know what Sansa is capable of doing going forward. Uh, if she feels that John is not making the right decisions, that especially if she feels like John is putting her in danger in any way, will she make a decision that is not in her best interest, but because of her trauma or because of her just general poor decision-making, do something that I think she will come to regret and will maybe lead to disaster because of this, how high the stakes are? I don't know. Clearly, her having the haircut that Cersei used to wear in King's Landing before she, uh, you know, had to get her hair cut off when she was a prisoner of the Faith Militant um, is not a good sign. I think when they do this kind of thing in Game of Thrones, it's not an accident. Wardrobe, hair, all this kind of stuff matters in terms of your character, and this is how they portray, like, what you are. Like, Sansa's already had one new hairstyle when she had, like, an, a new look when she had that kind of darker look, um, darker wardrobe, darker hair. Like, this is another change, and I think it's it portends a change in her personality. And I'm concerned, because obviously I'm on Team John. You know, Sansa can go to hell for all I have to say. Even though she did save John, yes, she did, but she could have just given John all the information he needed, and she's still holding back information from him to this day for reasons that I don't understand. I, I don't know why she wouldn't trust John. It seems to make no sense to me. Uh, maybe she has ambitions. I, I really couldn't say at this point. Uh, the other major conflict that's been established now between two characters that you would think would be on the same side are Cersei and Jaime. And... I said this in the finale episode uh, last year, uh, that Jamie is in quite a predicament here. The reason that Jamie is the Kingslayer is because he killed the Mad King when the Mad King was about to blow up the entire city of King's Landing with the wildfire caches that Cersei eventually used to blow up the Sept of Baelor. So in a sense, Cersei has become the person that Jamie ruined his reputation and basically made him a pariah to save the, the, the people and to do the thing that now Cersei has just done. And now, and then just in this episode, for Cersei to say that Tommen betrayed us by killing himself is outrageous and really just completes her journey to just true monstrousness. And there are people, you know, such as my uh, co-host Ankit Singh, who believe in Cersei and value Cersei. I have never been in that camp. Uh, part of that comes from the books where she's just a much more terrible person 
horrible figure. There's really nothing that ever drew me to Cersei. But the one thing that always humanized her from day one was that she loved her children. She loved her children. She wanted the best for them, just like all of us do. And so you could believe that that was the one thing that kind of humanized her and made her somebody that you could root for. That's gone. So Jamie says, what are we even fighting for at this point? And she says, for ourselves. Because there is not going to be a dynasty unless Jamie is involved in that dynasty. I think we can assume that Cersei is past the age of uh, that where she could have children. So what is the point of being queen? Yes, she fulfilled her goals. She's sitting on the Iron Throne. She doesn't have any legitimacy, which is part of being the monarch. You have to have people respect you, respect your authority, that you are, in fact, the queen. I think if you asked anyone else other than the people of King's Landing or possibly the Lannister army, is Cersei Lannister queen of the Seven Kingdoms? I think Jamie said it best. He's, she's the queen of three at best. And it's re it really means nothing that she sits on the Iron Throne in and of itself. So... Uh, you know, I think if it was if it was up to Jamie, they, they would just sail across the, the narrow sea and, and try to live out their lives in Essos or at least go back to Casterly Rock and just try to enjoy themselves for what time they have left. I mean, that was really all Jamie ever wanted himself besides being a great swordsman. So what's left for the two of them? Um, and, and really, that question is unanswered by Cersei. I think she really has no answer. Which, again, just tells us how much of a monster she's become. And I think Jamie's going to go along, but not for too much longer. I think that uh, there is a, a prophecy uh, which is partly uh, shown in the Season 5 cold open when uh, a young Cersei and her friends go to this uh, the hut of this witch who uh, drinks Cersei's blood and then gives her this prophecy. Uh, Cersei asks how many children she'll have and whether she'll marry the king, and the witch says that you will marry the king, the king will have many children, and you will have three, which was correct, because Robert had many bastards, and Cersei had three children with Jaime. And she, uh, the witch also says that gold will be their crowns and gold their shrouds, meaning that they will all die, which also came to pass. What was not shown in that cold open in the show, which may or may not mean that it's going to be different, is that uh, that that she will eventually be killed by the Valonqar, uh, which is this uh, Valyrian word that means little brother. And she's always taken that to mean that Sir, that Tyrion will kill her. Uh, and so she has done everything in her power to prevent the deaths of her children and capturing Tyrion, uh, neither of which have happened. And the whole thing has just led her into worse and worse shape. But I really think, you know, considering that the birth order is uh, Cersei came out first, and then Jamie. So Jamie is her little brother, and I think it would be interesting uh, and poetic, and I think that's the kind of thing that they like to do on Game of Thrones, if Jamie was eventually the person that was forced to kill Cersei. For some reason, that you know will come up in the, in the course of the books. I, I'm not going to go so far as to guarantee that's going to happen, but it's certainly in the cards. And, you know, both of them dying in, in some way where they're trying to kill each other. You know, there's lots of ways that could, this could go, but it's going towards tragedy.
when you have people that are consumed by singular vision to the detriment of all else, those people always seem to end their lives in a tragic manner. That's just the way we do things when we tell stories. And I'm going to be very surprised if Cersei survives even this season. Uh, that being said, I think that you know she's still got a couple cards to play. And uh, with that, I want to move forward and um, just talk more and more about this, uh, this new warfare that's going to happen in, the, in this season and going forward that uh, Cersei's talking about and Jamie is sort of explaining to her that they need allies and that they're surrounded by enemies. Um, you know, th there's, there's war coming. Danny arriving on Dragonstone means that, you know, people are going to die. They're going to be shot with arrows. They're going to be burned alive with dragon fire. It's going to happen soon. So, Wherever Daenerys decides to strike first, wherever, however Elena Tyrell decides to uh, enact her revenge, the Cersei needs to be prepared. And so she's turned to one of the only allies she can find, the Greyjoys. And, you know, she rejects Euron Greyjoys' marriage proposal right away. But this kind of just motivates Euron to find her something that's priceless. Uh, something that will really convince Cersei that she should, you know, tie herself to Euron. Um, and I think that is going to have a lot to do with the fact that if Daenerys has three dragons on her side that she can control, then there is no drama left when it comes to the battle between Cersei and Daenerys. Because as the history of Westeros tells us three dragons is enough to defeat an army of thousands. Uh, there was this battle um, when Aegon uh, conquered Westeros called the Field of Fire, which the Lannister's army, the Lannister army was a part of, where all three dragons were in the same place, and they just burned like thousands of men alive. I mean, dragons are nuclear weapons, controllable, contained nuclear weapons. They are the ultimate trump card, and... The, the means of killing them, which is usually involves either a dragon being on the ground and kind of being in a fight with uh, like a really good swordsman that eventually is able to get like underneath one of their scales and stab them or by shooting them with like a giant crossbow that they had to make specially for these kind of things. But it's very uncommon. Dragons are ridiculously powerful. And I think Cersei or any other army, not the, certainly not the Greyjoys, you know, being in a, uh, a bunch of ships that are all made of wood. We saw what the dragons can do with a giant fleet. They'll just burn it to a crisp. There has to be some sort of defense for that, if there's going to be any more drama left in the story. And I think that is the gift that Euron will provide Cersei. Uh, I'm not going to say anymore, because I think it's a really interesting idea uh, that Daenerys's dragons will in some way become either incapacitated or betray her possibly by magical means and that's going to create some additional drama going forward because that's really been you know da Daenerys has a great army of Unsullied but obviously it's always been about those dragons from day one that's the key to her identity that's the key to how everyone else sees her as the mother of dragons and they give her the appropriate amount of respect militarily because now that these dragons are 
at least in their adolescence, they are more than capable of causing a ridiculous amount of damage. They could burn an entire castle to the ground and melt the stone, as we saw with Harrenhal. And there, there's just you can, there's no way to be safe. You you can't you cannot defeat these things without incredible losses, and it's probably likely that you couldn't do it anyway. So Danny and Cersei are going to come into conflict, and I think at some point her dragons will not be available to her, just from a story perspective. And that will be interesting. Uh, what does Daenerys do then? Um, she's going to start making plans. You know, she's standing around this table, Daenerys, that uh, her uh, her ancestor had carved that uh, just like Cersei is painting a map of Westeros in that room, um, Daenerys has this table that is carved in wood and it's it's a, also a map of Westeros. So we're in this kind of planning stage. Uh, where does she go first? And then how do other people respond to her? I think that's going to be, there's going to be a lot of interesting drama uh, from that perspective. Uh, some other things. Um, again, we're talking about the fact that uh, this, this show and this episode is moving towards conclusion at a rapid pace. We are on the rails towards the end. And the Hound is part of that. Uh, the Hound has... Th this is... I don't think we could we ever knew that the Hound had a, had a role to play in the, the future other than what I always thought would be a final confrontation between him and his zombified brother. Uh, but it seems like... Uh, at least the the writers of the show have a different uh, story to tell, and that's somehow that the Hound is going to have some part to play against the Night King, uh, which I find fascinating. Uh, I they they're they're on a redemption story for the Hound, uh, with him uh, burying those uh, that that father and daughter that he mugged and stole their silver and left them to die, um, saying that you know they would be dead by winter anyway, so I might as well have their silver because they're not going to be able to use it. And I can, because I'm strong and they're weak. Um, he has remorse for that now. Uh, he didn't, he doesn't know how to make amends. Uh, all he can do is, you know, bury them and just try to say something over their bodies. But really he's, he's trying to show that he's contrite and that he is feeling guilt. I think for the first time in his life, I think when you're someone like the hound and you've been abused the way he has by his brother, you know, and by Joffrey to a lesser extent, but really, you know, it was verbal abuse and, but the Hound just did what it's told. He's just dealing with the trauma of his childhood of literally having his face put into a fire and just the skin on his face, just burning off. And then after that, his father and everybody else just kind of covering it up and saying that his, uh, his bedding caught on fire and that this was all an accident, and that Gregor uh, just continues to go on to a storied career as a knight, and that, that's sort of where his disillusionment comes from. He's always been a cynic. He's always felt that uh, the world is not what the stories are, right? That's sort of his original uh, story arc with Sansa. Now he's starting to feel, I think, a lot more, uh, a greater breadth of emotions, and depth of, of feeling and I think Arya, Brienne, Sansa have changed him and now he is he's certainly not going in my opinion to become 
a, a truly religious man, but I think he uh, believes what his eyes tell him. And there is some power, obviously, to the red god and the sort of prophecies um, and, you know, <laughs> resurrection that Thoros is capable of doing. You know, will, will they now find Melisandre? I think that would be interesting. Melisandre just disappeared, right? Where did she go? I think that would be interesting. Maybe possibly she's riding south. No way to know. Uh, they will probably meet up with John at some point and become part of John's coalition. Um, but I, I, I've always liked the Hound, um, not just for the jokes. <laughs> I think he's always been a, uh, a really interesting character, and I think I'm uh, really excited to see what happens next. Uh, a couple other small points. Um, this episode had a lot of things. There are at least two references that I can think of to the wall standing firm and that the wall will never fall. Uh, I think Cersei, uh, sorry, Sansa said that, and uh, Sam's maester master uh, in the surgery scene when they're uh, doing that autopsy, um, that maester says that the wall has, ne has always stood tall and that every winter has come and gone. And I, I think, again, this show is very heavy-handed when it comes to clues. I think, in my opinion, at this point, it's very likely that the wall will fall and that the drama that we will that will happen in the show will be as a result of, again, just like I'm saying with Danny, this thing that we always expected them to have as a weapon that's part of their identity. Uh, you know, all of Westeros, you know, the wall is part of their identity. They don't have to worry about anything beyond the wall because the wall is the wall. Uh, once that falls, how do they rally? How do they find a way to overcome, again, when you reach the lowest point? That's sort of part of uh, drama, always, and fiction, uh, that uh, a story always reaches where a point where the characters feel like all is lost. And that's not happening in an hour and a half. It's happening over the course of an entire series but eventually all of these characters will come to a point where they where it, there's no hope and then they will eventually overcome and the wall falling in a dramatic fashion um by the night king and sort of reaffirming his unbelievable power that they cannot hope to stop uh will be a very interesting um device that I'm, I'm pretty confident will happen at this point, considering all the clues we're getting just from the fact that everyone's so confident that it won't fall. And uh, just a, a couple, one more tidbit. Uh, it, I'm sure most of you realize, but in case you didn't, um, the guy that was inside of that cell um, in Old Town that Sam uh, was taking the food back from, that's Jorah, uh, who's waiting for Danny to return. And he's gone to uh, the one place where he knows that he can receive medical attention, which is the Citadel, where the maesters who are the learned men of Westeros and really the world, uh, where he can go to seek medical attention for grayscale, which is what he's contracted. It's like this leprosy um, where his like skin is peeling off and stuff. So uh, I'm not sure what Jorah is waiting for, um, but he's, or, or I guess what he thinks 
he can do for Danny or what he wants to do for Danny now that he's contracted this disease. But uh, I'm, I'm excited. I've, uh, I've always liked Jorah. Um, I think he's never really done anything bad. I think him selling, you know, his story is he sold sla uh, slaves to the slaver to get money for his uh, very expensive wife that he loved more than anything. And now that same kind of love he applies to Daenerys. Um, I think he's obviously still cares for her and still wants to do whatever he can. So what can he do? It'll be interesting. I, I can't wait to see what he looks like. I think that's going to be cool. Uh, this was a great episode. I think definitely in the top 20th percentile of best Game of Thrones episodes. Uh, eventually, I'd like to do a ranking. But uh, it's definitely up there. There were a lot of great moments. There was no dead air. I think that there were a lot of uh, excellent scenes. A lot of great acting performances. I thought that Walder Frey as Arya, where he kind of transforms himself through his acting from how Walder Frey would act to how Arya would act, but he's still Walder Frey, obviously, is interesting. The Hound had some great had some great scenes. Uh, this is really why we watch this show. This is the best that this show has ever gotten to. Um, and I'm just excited to... Uh, Go on and keep watching it with all of you. So uh, thanks very much for listening. Uh, please feel free to get in contact me with, uh, with any questions or if you'd like to be part of the show, if you have ideas for segments. I'm just excited to be watching it with all of you, like I said. So let's keep it going. Until next time.